When I was a sophomore in college, I was on top of the world. I was taking the city of Dallas by storm. I was a 19-year-old legend in my own mind. One night, I was having a conversation with a freshman on our campus about the merits of joining our fantastic fraternity. And I went on and on, and I was very articulate and eloquent, and our fraternity was um, just awesome. And finally, uh, Gary interrupted me and said, Hey, Rob, I don't know. I have to go home over Christmas and see what the Lord wants me to do. See what the Lord wants me to do. Now, Gary wasn't being pushy, but he was being honest. He was being direct, and he was taking a risk. I didn't know it at the time, but he had been praying that God would open my arrogant, non-Christian eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of all God has done for me in Jesus Christ. See what the Lord wants me to do. I had never heard anyone talk about God in such personal terms. Never in my entire life. So that night, I spent the next two hours asking Gary, what in the world was he talking about? How did he have this kind of relationship with the Lord? Gary would go on to join our fraternity. Five months later, I would come to Christ. And after we graduated from college, we would go to seminary together. I am here today because of eight words. See what the Lord wants me to do. Eight words changed my life. Never underestimate the power of words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit murder. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. And we know that God works all things together for good. Who can comprehend the impact of those words on human civilization? And think about the power of our words. I love you. Will you marry me? Will you be my valentine? I am here for you. I want you to know I'm going to walk with you every step of the way through this thing. I've got your back. I am here for you. I forgive you. Will you forgive me? I really messed this thing up. Or words like, I never loved you, I want a divorce. You will never amount to anything. I hate her. Our words are life-giving and life-taking. Today we come to a brilliant section in 1 Peter. 
where we are told what Christianity has to say about how you and I can win the war of our words. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Now in this next section, Peter is quoting Psalm 34, a beautiful psalm. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now, there is more to this section than just words. But I want this morning to narrow our focus and see all that is said here about words. I want to talk about four things. I want to talk about bad words, good words, God's promise relative to our words, and the power for words. Let me say that again. We're going to talk about bad words, good words, God's promise here relative to our words, and then the power for words. So let's start with bad words. Peter in this section mentions three types of bad words. The first is found in verses 9 and 10 where he talks about evil words. Peter is writing to help his readers, these first century readers, live out the gospel in a world that is, was just like our world today. It was a world that was dismissive and even hostile toward Christians. These believers that Peter is writing to were not being killed but they were being marginalized because of their stand for Christ. They were being objectified. They were being stereotyped. They're just Christians. Ignore them. And if you look at verse 16, you discover they were being spoken maliciously against. And so what is Peter doing? Peter is wrestling with the question, well, how are we as Christians to respond when this is going down? And what does Peter say? Do not repay evil words with evil words. Now that's true whether evil words are coming from a non-Christian or a Christian. Evil words are poisonous words, hateful, obscene, slanderous, cruel. Their words spoken in anger, their words spoken in spite, their words spoken in arrogance. Uh, these were the words of 
Nicholas Cruz over the last weeks, months. And we didn't miss them. These are the words of the secular academic elites, not just academic elites. Oh, Christians, well, that's just a crutch. Christianity is just a crutch. It's just a myth. Uh, Really, these people aren't fit to hold public office. These are the words of Hitler. We will exterminate the Jews. Evil words. But we speak them as well. My boss is a jerk. I can't believe she said that. We have been married for five years and you're the laziest person I've ever met. You'll never find a job. And my point is we are all guilty of evil words. We all struggle with evil words. We gossip, we complain, we badmouth neighbors, our job, the government, a distant husband, an unappreciative wife. We rip people that get in our way or people that are different than us. What are your evil words? To whom are they directed? Let's go on to the second category. Actually, these next two are subcategories of evil words. Look at verse 9. They are insulting words. Do not repay insult for insult. Now, legend, I wish I could say history, but at least legend has that the famous playwright George Bernard Shaw had a difference with Winston Churchill, and I want you to see evidence of that. Let's look at this on this slide. So Shaw wrote to Churchill, I'm enclosing two tickets to the first night of my new play. Bring a friend if you have one. Churchill, fully equal, can't attend the first night, will attend the second if there is one. Now insults, we can laugh about that. But isn't this exactly how liberals speak about conservatives and conservatives about liberals? Is an insult the language of racism? Isn't it the language of a couple heading to divorce? Isn't it the language of an angry teenager? But none of us are immune. I mean, the car in front of us is going too slow, and so what do we shout out? Well, this guy's a moron. The car behind us is going too fast, and what do we shout out? Well, that guy's an idiot. It's insults. And we all use it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now remember that. To be a Christian, Peter is saying, is to be so secure in the love of Christ that you don't return, you do not return insult for insult. Who do you insult? What are your insults? Let's go on to the third category, the last. 
It's found in verse 10. It's found in the words of the psalmist. It's deceitful words. I perfected this in high school. I spent most of my four years in high school lying to my single-parent mother. Mostly lying about what I was doing on the weekends. I spoke half-truths, kind of misdirection, and just outright lies. And the problem is we all have this tendency. We want what we want, so we lie. We want to cover our steps, so we want to cover our backs, so we equivocate on the truth. We want to protect ourselves. Uh, We are so in in ways we don't even understand to our own image management that what do we do? We shade. We mislead. We deceive. I wonder, as you're sitting here today, is there somebody you are deliberately lying to? Is there someone a group of people that you are deceiving. Bad words. Bad words. Let's go on to good words. This is found in verse 9. According to verse 9, interestingly, good words are words that bless. Peter says, on the contrary... Repay evil with blessing. You're thinking, how can I bless? Now, this is extraordinary. It's countercultural. This is what makes Jesus in you distinctive. It's what makes you stand out and what gives evidence to the reality of your faith in Jesus. Uh, instead of repaying evil for evil, you bless instead. That only flows from a heart saturated by the blessings of God. Now, what are words of blessing? Well, for instance, they're words of hope. It's Abraham speaking to his beloved son Isaac, who was bound and on the altar. And what does Abraham say? Abraham says, God will provide, Isaac. God will provide, and God provided. Words of hope. Words of blessing are also words of grace. Joseph speaking to his brothers who betrayed him. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You are welcome in my home. Words of blessing are also words of encouragement. Think of Nehemiah speaking to the Jews. Coming back to Jerusalem after it's been destroyed, Nehemiah says, don't listen to the opponents. Don't listen to what other people are saying. Don't go on Facebook. Don't go on social media. Don't listen. God has called us to this moment, to such a time as this. We will rebuild the walls. We will begin the process of rebuilding uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now arise and work. Words of encouragement. Words of blessing are also words of forgiveness. It's Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. 
They had no idea what they were doing. They don't understand what they're doing. They just don't get it. Who are you going to speak words of blessing to today? Man, you want to change your workplace environment? Start speaking words of blessing. Parents, you want to impact your children? Speak words of blessing. May God give us as followers of Jesus Christ the grace to instead of speaking returning evil for evil, we return a blessing instead. Now let's go on to the promise here. The promise is at the end of verse 9. Peter says, bless people so that you might inherit a blessing. Now, what is this blessing? Well, commentators tell us it's unpacked in verses 10, 11, and 12. Look at verse 10. It's the blessing of loving life. It's God so working in your life that you just flat enjoy your life. You enjoy getting up in the morning. You look forward to your day. You, you're so thankful for all that God has done for you. And second, look at what we see in verse 10. As we go through this psalm, Psalm 34, this blessing is a blessing of seeing good days. Now we need to be careful here because these first century readers were suffering. They were experiencing significant setbacks. Some were losing their jobs because of their faith. Others were being ostracized because of their faith. So good days here can't mean problem-free days. But days when on the inside, on the inside of you, regardless of what is happening on the outside, you have the sense of God's presence. You have the sense of being loved. You have the sense of God's power. Uh, you have the sense of contentment and peace. Now finally, bump down to verse 12. What is this blessing that we inherit? It's this promise that God sees you and God listens to you. God sees you in the sense that God knows your address. He knows what you're going through today. He's intimately involved in your life. He knows every hair on your head. He will care for you. He will protect you. You do not need to fear. He will answer your prayers. He will answer your prayers in the way that is best. Because he loves you. What an incredible promise. What incredible promises. Now, don't misunderstand. Peter is not advocating salvation by works. He's not advocating you bless others, God will bless you. That's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches the moment you and I come to Jesus Christ, we are blessed by God with all the blessings in the heavenly places. All the blessings of God in the heavenly places when we trust God, when we walk by faith and we place the weight of our eternal destiny down on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That's not a works thing, that's a faith thing. And that happens the moment you believe. So what in the world is Peter talking about here? Peter is speaking to believers and he is saying, he's making a bold statement about the relationship of your speech 
to the blessings of God in your life. And he is warning against you being careless about your words. You thinking your words are no big deal. They, man, they just flow. Your words being a mixed bag of good words and bad words. And he's saying to experience the blessings of God means you will not be half-hearted. You will not be lukewarm about your words. Uh, you are going to speak what good words, words that bless. I mean, think about it. You got Tom and Sue yelling and screaming at each other. They're three years into their marriage. They are developing this hate and this spite for each other. And they're just standing there and they just spend an hour screaming at each other. Are they loving life? Or you got a dad ripping on his kid, yelling at his kid. Are they experiencing a good day? Or, or finally you get so fed up at work that you just let him have it. Are, are, are people seeing the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you? We are saved by faith, not by works, but our words matter. And you know who we hurt the most with our words? We hurt ourselves. Because we deny the blessings that God wants us to experience, to love life, experience good days, answered prayer, to know that God has our back. Now, that brings me to the power. And this is where I think this section gets brilliant. And let me be honest with you and set it up this way. If there's one thing I have learned over the years as a follower of Jesus Christ is that I do not have the power to control my tongue. Words just sort of flow from me. I, I, I speak for a living. But when I'm irritated or, or when I feel that I've experienced an injustice, that's not fair. That's a definition of an injustice. Man. Am I quick to respond? And it's been a problem in my marriage. And it's a problem for all of us. And it's not that I lack the skill. It's not that I lack the knowledge. It's that I lack the ability to control my tongue. It's not that I live in a blended family. It's that my heart is broken. It's dysfunctional. And I need Jesus. And so do you. So do all of us. And that's exactly what Peter points us to in two different ways in this section. So first, let's back up and look at the larger context. Here are we coming to two of my favorite verses in 1 Peter. Verses that I have used uh, hundreds of times in counseling over the years. And let's pick it up in verse 23, chapter 2. Peter says, speaking of Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, that would be Jesus. Man, he just insulted back, right? No, 
No, he did not retaliate. Think about that. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, righteous words. By his wounds you have been healed. Now healed here is not, this is not a physical thing. He's not talking about being healed from cancer. He's talking about being healed spiritually. He's talking about your words and your heart being healed. That's the context. Now, there is something profound here in verse 23. And it's not merely that Jesus did not retaliate. Jesus did not utter threats. It's what he did instead. And what I'm about to say, if you're married, this is key to your marriage. Parents, this is key to parenting. This is key to your testimony in the marketplace. It's key to your friendships, your your relationships. So let me set it up this way. It just happens real quickly. Somebody says something and something in you kind of snaps. You can feel the anger rising. Maybe it was an insult. Maybe it was something short of an insult. Maybe you're misunderstood. Maybe a, a, a need you're, you're, you're expressing is, is being denied. You're being ignored. You're being mistreated. It, it could be a variety of different things, but it happens in a moment. And all of a sudden, you've got this thing going on, and, and the words are on the tip of your tongue. How do you keep from retaliating? What do you do to avoid lashing out? Notice the last sentence in verse 23. And may it change your life. This is the power. Jesus went vertical. He entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In other words, Jesus took his eyes, took his focus off the circumstance, off the person, and looked to God. And rested in God and his grace. It's you thinking, you know what this person just said to me is wrong. But my worth, my identity, my joy is not tied to this person. It's tied to God. And God loves me and God judges justly. He'll take care of this. I will trust him. And he unpacks this more in verse 24. Look at verse 24. It's you saying to yourself in that moment that you want to slam, you want to lean in, you want to correct the injustice. It's you saying, you know what? This person didn't die for me. Jesus died for me. This person isn't perfect. Jesus is perfect. So because of that, because my love and security is in Jesus and I'm going vertical in the moment, I'm leaning into Jesus, I will die to my desire to speak sin. And I will take the injustice. I will absorb it. Because I'm alive in Jesus Christ. This is precisely, by the way, why in this famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because Paul knows our tendency to tether our joy to our family, to our jobs, to our friends, to our car, to our sports, to whatever. 
to everything and anything that's vertical. And Paul knows if we do that, and if that's our joy, and that's, the deriv- that's a platform for our joy, then it's just a matter of time until we're speaking evil words, deceitful words, insulting words, because people and circumstances will always disappoint. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, Let me say it differently. When you see Jesus as your king, that he is sovereign over the entirety entirety of your life, and when you see Jesus as your savior, uh, that he loves you so much as we see in verse 24 that he died on the cross for you. When you understand that the dominant metaphor Paul uses in the New Testament to describe your relationship with Christ is marriage. 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 Which means that all Jesus is and all that Jesus has for you is yours. Then, then, living vertically, you find the power and you will not lash out because you are entrusting yourself to God. My God is bigger than this. You're living in light of your union, your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first passage. Let's look at the second. The second is found in chapter 3 in verse 15. This first sentence, in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, not your job, not your this, not your that. You see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying, yes, your words matter to Jesus. But really, Jesus matters to your words. Do you revere him as Lord? Do you see Jesus Christ as better than anything and everything at the functional boots on the ground level do you see jesus as the better joy the uh, the better friend the better job the better spouse the better this the better boss and when you do when you see jesus as better then your words will bless they will not destroy to revere christ is to see jesus as better than everything Now let me apply this and I'll be done. Parents, your children are not perfect. Almost perfect, but not perfect. And they are not meant to live the life that you thought you should live. They are not your substitutes. They are not your badge of success. They can't handle that pressure. You can't handle that pressure as a mom or a dad. But when you understand that there is only one perfect child who always obeyed, who always respected, who always did what the Father wanted, and that Jesus is the better child, then you will be free to love your children and not demand from them. 
You revere Christ, not your kid's success. Or maybe you've had an icy relationship with a parent. It just hasn't gone well. And you've really, really struggled. You've never felt his or her approval. And I want to say to you in love, man, you need to stop complaining about that. You need to get beyond being stuck over that. Here's why. Your mom and your dad are not God. And parents will always fail to give you the approval you need. Instead, Peter is saying, see that Jesus is the better apparent. That is, he gives you the complete, ultimate, total approval, identity, acceptance, and love. Something mom and dad can never do for you. And to the extent you see Jesus as the ultimate parent, the perfect parent, the the better parent, you will let your parents off the hook. Uh, To the extent you see that Jesus is the better boss, the perfect boss, you'll let your boss off the hook. You'll let your spouse. Because you know in Jesus you are completely, totally approved. This is what it means to revere Christ as Lord. Now hear me in this. I'm just about done. What the New Testament doesn't give you relative to your words is techniques. What Peter is giving you is Jesus. Entrust yourself to God. Revere Christ as Lord in your heart. And I promise you, when you see Jesus as the better everything, man, your words will bless and give life. Amen? Let's pray. So God, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to us and you would change us. We confess to you that our words are problematic. God, that's so true in my life. Would you, as we see the wonder of all that Jesus has done for us, And the blessings we enjoy give us the capacity to bless others. Amen.